0: Welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. This episode is about securities enforcement. It is a tumultuous time for the capital markets, and securities regulators are as busy as ever. New financial products, read crypto, raise novel investor protection issues and call for scrutiny around what new business models do and how they should be regulated. New industries, read cannabis, invite in eager, unseasoned investors who may be exposed to a significant risk when representations about a business turn out to be misleading. And new legislation aims to revamp the way the OSC approaches regulation of the capital markets, including enforcement. To get the insider's perspective on all these developments, we welcome Jeff Kehoe to the podcast. Jeff is Director of Enforcement for the Ontario Securities Commission. He joined the OSC in 2016, having spent more than a decade running enforcement for the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, or IROC, and before that, he was a Crown Attorney and Crown Counsel with the Department of Justice. Joining Jeff is Linda First. Linda is one of the Chairs of the Toronto Litigation Group at Norton Rose. She's a commercial litigator who focuses on securities litigation, class actions, and regulatory issues. Before going into private practice, Linda also worked as senior investigation counsel with the enforcement branch of the OSC, where she also undertook a rotation with the SEC in Washington, DC. Between them, Linda and Jeff have many decades of securities enforcement experience and a clear window into developments into the space. We were very grateful for the chance to speak with them and we hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: So, uh, first of all, Jeff, Linda, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We really appreciate having you here.
2: Happy to be here. Thank you so much. So, uh,
1: Jeff, let, let me start with you, and I'm going to ask a question about, about the commission. You know, it goes without saying we're um, in the midst of a tumultuous time when it comes to uh, all things, um, but obviously, you know, litigation and regulation and enforcement. Um, what has been the impact, as far as you can tell, uh, of the COVID pandemic on OSC enforcement?
2: No, that's a really good question and an important question. There's been some wonderful benefits, really, that have uh, really developed out of the, the pandemic, and there have been some challenges. So initially, uh, when uh, the, the pandemic hit, uh, we had to restructure some of how we do both investigations and hearings and what I mean by that is that we always did our examinations as Linda knows in person and immediately we had to sort of uh, essentially be uh, sort of virtual investigation rooms where we were able to put documents uh, to witnesses documents of those that are subject possibly to an investigation virtually and uh, at the same time sort of uh, try as best as possible to make the examination interview flow naturally as if it was in person. And that took some months. And once we've gotten to the groove of it, it's worked out really well so that we can now do hybrid uh, uh, interviews where some people are in person, some people are on the screen. So that has worked out well. The the second challenge was the fact that uh, our hearings were uh, adjourned for uh, approximately seven months. So from March until the fall, uh, we had no hearings because the panel was really waiting to find out uh, what sort of the impact of the, the I'll call it, pandemic was going to have on, on having in-person, uh, in-person hearings. As a result, we did have to create virtual hearings over the last year and a half, and that has been a wonderful thing. It's been a wonderful thing because we now can put on hearings that people from all across Ontario, all across Canada, in fact, all across the world, Can dial into they can participate in a way that they couldn't in the past so it's uh, greater access to justice and it really sort of aligns quite nicely uh, with the open court principle so we are hoping and anticipating that the virtual hearing room is going to continue even when it uh, returns to in-person hearings.
3: Is is the commission seeing though that a lot of people are in fact dialing into the hearings more so than Uh, would be attending physically if the hearing was conducted as it usually was at 20 Queen Street West in person? That's
2: a really good question. So we are tracking those stats. And for certain cases, that is, uh, it it is true. For example, crypto uh, settlement agreements uh, seem to attract people from around the world. And so we uh, uh, had a few settlement agreements where we had like, uh, I'll call it significant numbers dial in to hear about the the presentation of the settlement agreement and sort of what the the sanctions were going to be. Other matters, uh, as Linda said, it's still really sort of, uh, akin to traditional sort of uh, in person matters. Uh, there's less interest uh, in some of uh, I'll call it the more routine sort of uh, uh, hearings.
4: Are there any changes in the trends or the types of matters then uh, that are coming to the enforcement, are coming to the attention of the OSC?
2: So uh, there are two parts to that question. And the first part is that we select our cases based on the priorities of the commission. So every year the commission and the commissioners decides of what uh, uh, present the greatest risk to the capital market. So we use that, what's called a risk-based approach uh, to identifying cases. And so we tailor our case assessment uh, sort of the model to pick those cases that the commission has identified as, uh, as a priority for that for, for a given year. For example, we are very, very interested in crypto and we are doing a lot of those, but uh, we are looking to, uh, at ESG issues now. So we're starting to focus on that because that's a priority for the commission. We're looking at gatekeeper issues and uh, we are still focused on some of the more traditional types of violations such as insider trading. The second part of that my answer is that we also get a number of referrals and complaints from stakeholders, complainants, uh, both in Ontario and really across Canada. And what we're seeing is that there is a huge spike in crypto uh, related complaints. And that seems to be something that uh, we anticipate uh, is going to continue for the next few years. We also uh, were getting a lot of uh, complaints about Emergings of uh, I'll call it capital markets companies, such as cannabis companies, as well in terms of valuation issues, in terms of uh, I'll call it some challenges to sort of, uh, some of their their growth. And I think those are two things that uh, uh, will continue for the next few years.
4: Do you mind talking a bit more about what the crypto complaints look like specifically, and where these complaints are coming from?
2: Yes, really good question. So. There are a, a number of different types of crypto complaints. The most predominant uh, complaint is fraud. And uh, there are a number of websites around the world that advertise sort of making a fortune on crypto, advertising sort of how to teach you to invest in crypto. In fact, there are even dating sites uh, that sort of uh, also talk about uh, investing in crypto, if you can believe it. So, The predominance of that type of complaint is I gave a a crypto platform my credit card and I lost uh, $5,000. So that's the number one complaint. There are also some complaints about existing platforms in Canada, about service issues. I I can't seem to get uh, my money out of uh, the platform or I've been trying to do trading and it doesn't seem to to be done fast enough. So those are other complaints as well.
3: Kind of interesting, Jeff, though, though, isn't it that, you know, in terms of the, the crypto frauds, it's really kind of a variation on a the theme of the old boiler rooms. It's it's kind of the same actors probably beside behind some of those frauds as, as we've seen in, in previous years operating securities boiler rooms.
2: Linda, that's absolutely right. Uh, so it's uh, the fraudsters remain the same, but it's the products and the technology that's changed. And really, that's it, because it's the same hype. It's the same type of promises that are made. And it's the same inducements, uh, which is you can make a fortune overnight. And we all know that's not true. Anything <laughs> that seems too good to be true is too good to be true. And uh, people it's about, on a daily basis are induced to, uh, to, to buy into it. But Linda is absolutely right. Uh, it, it resembles a number of the types of frauds that we've seen in the past.
1: So Linda, give us your perspective from the civil side on trends that, that you're seeing in private securities litigation.
3: Yeah, so I guess, you know, class actions, the securities class actions in particular is, a, is the biggest thing. Um, you know, we saw an increase in the number of securities class actions uh, a number of years ago. I think it was in 2021. Uh, matched the all-time high of, you know, 15 uh, in one year in Canada, which is a high number for Canada compared to the U.S., and then a significant drop the following year. And, you know, one of the factors that seems to have contributed significantly to that uh, trend Uh, The uptick and then the decrease were the cannabis class actions. You know, as we know, there were quite a number of cannabis class actions that were commenced a few years ago, then that dropped off. uh, And I think that that accounts for that that change. Um, Another trend that we've seen in the past few years is the focus of class council on allegedly excess fees charged or being collected by financial institutions in the mutual fund space. Uh, And, you know, we've seen both fund manufacturers and discount brokers who sold uh, mutual funds, being the the target of those class actions in a number of provinces. It's not just Ontario, it's also BC and Quebec. The trial of one fund manufacturer in a case in BC uh, for having allegedly um, participated in something called closet indexing was decided recently in favour of the, the financial institution. But there are a number of class actions relating to similar uh, practices that are still uh, in the works and we're going to see how those those shake out over the next few years and and those cases are interesting because they involve some you know novel issues about the application of trust law to mutual fund trustees you know in Canada mutual funds were set up as trusts, Uh, So some interesting issues that will be determined uh, on a legal basis in those cases. And then just briefly, a couple of other trends we've noted is, you know, we're seeing many more securities class actions being commenced in British Columbia, as opposed to Ontario. And that appears to be as a result of changes to the Ontario Class Proceedings Act, uh, which have changed the test for certification. Uh, There's also the Ragunan principle that applies in Ontario that doesn't in BC. Uh, You know, the result of that is that in BC, it's easier for a single plaintiff to bring an action against a bunch of defendants who engaged in the same kind of conduct than it is in Ontario. So those those are some of the things that we're seeing right now. So
1: Jeff, what, what does the the existence of that robust class action bar and securities civil litigation bar mean for enforcement? Does that let you train your your focus on certain types of matters and Give you some confidence that the the civil system will provide relief for for people who suffered losses to some extent. Does that free up your resources a bit to to tackle other problems?
2: The answer to that question is complicated, but it's uh, both yes and no. And first of all, yes, uh, like uh, a robust class action of so I'll call it uh, uh, bar and so that landscape is very, very important because, uh, civil remedies, really sort of lend themselves to sort of all investors getting their money back. Uh, the challenge with an enforcement, uh, enforcement proceeding is that there may be uh, 5,000 investors in a, a particular sort of a product, in a particular sort of a company, and enforcement may sort of interview 10, 20, or 30 of those investors. And if, in fact, we do a settlement agreement or a hearing, we may include five or 10 of them uh, as part of our hearing process. The challenge is that if in fact, we then have a sanction hearing, we are not able to to say, okay, the the loss by all investors is X amount. That's simply not something that uh, is easily done in enforcement because enforcement was never designed really uh, uh, to ensure that all investors get their money back, uh, uh, you know, uh, within sort of the enforcement process, so we're uh, we're very, very pleased that uh, the 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 class actions cases that are brought on behalf of investors uh, are robust, and some of them are successful. That being said, uh, the class actions are a great opportunity for enforcement in certain situations for the enforcement uh, uh, arm of the OSC to get money to investors. And so where we can, we will use the existence of a class action to forward money to the class action. And we've done that in a few cases. They, I think uh, uh, a prominent example was the home capital uh, case where we use the class action to forward tens of millions of dollars to, uh, to the investors and to called to the, uh, the, the class action itself for disposition. Uh, the, the other challenge we have is if in fact, we do take an action And we do try to get uh, the money back to investors, as we did in something called market timing decades ago. Decades ago, we did this. Uh, We then find that uh, there were some investors that did not uh, know about the uh, the process and did not know that they could get money back at that time. And so they've initiated their own class action, uh, which is still ongoing. So it's it's a complicated area. Uh, so we we applaud the existence of class actions. We utilize them where we can. Uh, and they do present challenges for us if, uh, in fact, uh, we take action, but we don't uh, cover the, the territory of all investors.
3: If I could just kind of pick up on an, another angle, I think that comes out of that. It's kind of been interesting to see the interplay between the decisions that the civil courts are rendering in the secondary market securities class actions. Uh, And, you know, the the reliance of the courts on the developed jurisprudence that the OSC has relating to things like, you know, the the definition of materiality and what constitutes a material change. And it's going to be interesting to see to what extent now that the commission may, in fact, rely on some of those cases emerging in the civil context when they're dealing with disclosure issues and whether there's going to be mutual reliance on, on the decisions of the other
2: and there's certainly going to be robust debate, debate about that and Linda's right, so uh, we may see some uh, civil concepts as about uh, creeping into some uh, enforcement cases down the road.
4: This might be slightly off, topic, but did something occurred to me as you were talking about the class actions and you mentioned ESG issues earlier as well as another trend that um, we're seeing we recorded an episode on greenwashing claims last week and greenwashing litigation and I'm just thinking in some companies are increasingly facing um, action potentially class actions when it comes to engaging in greenwashing activities is that something that is coming onto the OSC's radar at all um, nature of investigating greenwashing activity and how would what would that look like in terms of um, this dynamic with class action activity when it comes to greenwashing?
2: So, that's a really good question. And the idea of, of greenwashing is something that we take very seriously. Essentially, it's misleading disclosure. And that's, that, that's how we would look at it uh, in the context of securities regulation, is that you're representing, for example, that uh, you're doing so many good things uh, uh, to, uh, to, to protect the planet, and in fact, you're not. And uh, so, if in fact, we, we discern, we discover, that you are misrepresenting us uh, sort of what, uh, what you are doing, then we will take action. And we are looking for those cases right now. It's early days. The existence of a class action sometimes can be a, a great referral uh, for us. If in fact we see, uh, sort of, uh, let's say a class action sort of, uh, initiated and it's an allegation of greenwashing, we may sort of investigate ourselves to see if in fact uh, we can sort of, uh, find an enforcement case out of that class action, and we've done that in the past.
4: Mm. I think it also speaks to an interesting question about the evolving role of the regulator and to what extent it is proactive or reactive. Do you think it is, particularly with the on, uh, with the rise of ESG issues, do you think it is transitioning from a reactive role to a more proactive role?
2: In certain areas, uh, we do have to be more proactive, and I think we are trying to be proactive. Uh, I think. ESG, it's going to be a bit of a challenge to be uh, as proactive as we would like right now. And the the reason for that is the international standards for ESG are not quite settled yet. There are actually competing standards that uh, are being developed uh, around the world. And so it's a challenge for a regulator to say, uh, uh, well, you picked the wrong subset of standards. So uh, I think uh, we're going to take our guidance from uh, both the internal experts at the OSC, our corporate finance department, that is developing expertise around, sort of, uh, let's say, greenwashing and some sort of appropriate sort of uh, uh, standards in ESG itself. Uh, before we really sort of launch into sort of a, a number of cases, but to answer your question, uh, it's I really wish uh, I've got to be careful what I say because we're just we're really just a starting uh, on ESG. But let me pivot to another area where we are trying to be much more proactive. And that's, into the, I'll call it, internet-based misconduct. And internet-based misconduct uh, does not easily lend itself to, to traditional enforcement action. And the reason for that is if, in fact, uh, the assets uh, go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, which they do, especially in the crypto space, it only takes one jurisdiction uh, to tell us that they're not going to cooperate uh, with us. That uh, then renders the enforcement action difficult to, to complete. So, as a matter of, uh, I, I think, necessity, enforcement is now looking to international disruption to be more proactive. How do we stop the harm in its tracks? And so we're working with uh, other regulators around the world to develop practices and principles around disruption. Uh, and we hope uh, that, that really to sort of arrive at a, sort of a, a body of accepted protocols where we can be more proactive. And I would love that to, sort of, uh, to expand into some other areas uh, of, of capital markets because if you can stop the harm uh, in its uh, tracks, then sort of the investors really get much more meaningful sort of investor protection.
3: Really, an age-old problem, Jeff, isn't it? I mean, from from my days at the Commission many many years ago, uh, you know, there were difficulties sometimes getting foreign regulators to assist OSC staff in investigating cross-border misconduct, and the smart you know the smart bad guys out there know which jurisdictions to pick and to operate out of because they know that certain regulators are going to be less uh, less cooperative in those kind of cross-border investigations. And, and I think that's why so much work was done in the past about developing memorandum understanding and, you know, becoming, IOSCO becoming the more robust international organization uh, that it is now.
2: Exactly right. And it, it even goes beyond uh, assets. Uh, we've had recent examples where we can't even find the principles uh, of, uh, of an existing entity because they are scattered around the world, and they there is no head office. There there is no bricks and mortar uh, of these entities, uh, and as a result, uh, it is very difficult to find the individuals uh, that are in charge of these, I'll uh, uh, call capital markets entities, uh, whether it's crypto uh, or, or others. Uh, but uh, it's presenting problems for us and. Like Linda said, the problems already uh, has always been there, but it's becoming increasingly more challenging to, to affect the traditional enforcement action because uh, really uh, of internet-based misconduct, internet-based capital raises. And the fact is that uh, this next generation realizes we don't have to have a, have a head office. I can be in Singapore, the CFO can be in Malta, and so the, the uh, chief compliance officer in Canada.
3: And is this something that, that, that OSC enforcement is discussing with the RCMP and the criminal authorities as well? Because they face the same issue, don't they?
2: They do. And uh, we have been in discussions with uh, law enforcement, RCMP, uh, some, uh, other law enforcements, as well as our, our IOSCO members. We're going to have to, at one point, uh, some sometime down the road, really uh, grapple with the collaboration that's needed uh, to, so, to get the bad guys, so to speak.
1: Jeff, you mentioned the traditional securities enforcement action, but of course, your organization is undergoing considerable change as well right now. I mean, you formed the Capital Markets Tribunal for Adjudication of Enforcement Issues. There's a new board of directors whose roles and responsibilities have changed. There's a new office of the CEO. How is that impacting enforcement?
2: So we're not seeing uh, really any, uh, I'll call it, Demonstrable changes uh, so far. The, the internal workings of the, the commission uh, are, uh, are different. They're very, very different. But enforcement has always enjoyed uh, a little bit of a separation. And in, in, in the past, that was because of the actual structure of the, the commission itself. Uh, the commissioners were both tribunal, well, well they were tribunal uh, members, they were policy members, and they were the board. Now there is that separation. So internally, I'm unable uh, to talk more about what enforcement does because the commissioners are no longer tribunal members. But there's still uh, that, that healthy separation between enforcement and uh, what, what I'll call board governance. And as a result, there's really uh, no changes so far. Uh, there's no changes really at the, uh, the level of uh, I'll call it the tribunal. Uh, because it still functions in the same way that it did. It's just separated. There is uh, that uh, I'll call it acknowledgement that they are a completely separate tribunal. Uh, we are trying to work out new types of documents, uh, new types of arrangements uh, with them. And the biggest change of anything is that uh, we now sort of, uh, are very conscious of the fact that we will need to do everything sort of, uh, uh, that let's say, uh, requires reform with the bar. So Linda has to be at the table. uh, If in fact, we want to change a document, we can't simply uh, go like we did in the past where we'd have an internal discussion because that's really uh, the way it was done uh, because it was part of the commission. Now it's not. So we're going to uh, in the the future use the body known as SPAC, which is essentially some enforcement uh, people from the at the Commission side as well as the bar such as Linda uh, who will sort of, uh, participate in discussions about how to run the tribunal uh, uh, process better.
3: So just picking up Jeff on what you uh, just said about the new structure at the Commission I think you know in general respondents counsel, with the private side of the bar was reassured by the appointees to the new enforcement or rather the new capital markets tribunal they all seem to be well qualified but I think you know, there is a concern that over time some of the expertise that the former hearing panel members had by virtue of the fact that they were also commissioners and involved in the making of policy uh, and had a very sound understanding of securities law and practices that, that that could be lost and as a result of that there may be less expertise uh, at the tribunal level as time goes on and it was that expertise that led the courts originally to give so much deference to commission decisions so I think there is a potential impact in future, again, depending on the quality of the appointees going forward. Okay, so we've talked about
4: uh, crypto trading platform enforcement, activity enforcement, um, ESG trends, illicit internet activity. Linda, specifically, what more general trends can we expect to see in this space in the next year or so? What trends are you looking at
3: most closely when it comes to OSC enforcement activity? So I'm going to answer that both with respect to OSD enforcement activity and civil litigation, if that's okay. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of economic disruption going on right now. We've got uh, interest rates going up. We have the threat of a recession. And, you know, typically and historically, when markets have dropped in Canada, uh, investors tend to look for deep pockets to try to pursue, to try to recover you know investment losses. So you know I think that the outcome of that is going to be we're going to see a lot more investor complaints to the securities regulators. We're also going to see an uptick in civil litigation and in particular in securities class actions over the coming months and you know potentially years. So that's one trend I think that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Uh, you know Jeff spoke about uh, an increase in the regulatory uh, attention being paid to cryptocurrency. We're also seeing that on the civil side, and I know Andrew has had some experience with this himself, uh, being involved in a number of civil crypto disputes. But I expect we're going to see that trend continuing. We've already seen courts being very active in terms of uh, making things like Anton Piller orders and Mareva injunctions uh, in the context uh, of uh, uh, cryptocurrency-related disputes, uh, you know, issues relating to to loss of tokens uh, by investors. And, and I think that that trend is just going to accelerate as cryptocurrency continues to be uh, an evolving um, you know, financial um, instrument uh, in the coming years.
1: Jeff said as well about the cannabis space, because it's a, a market where so much activity happens so quickly, so many people flooded in, and so many businesses are struggling now with it seems like every aspect of that business to, to be in and so the level of scrutiny that's going to be applied to public statements made about how businesses are functioning and how investors are being treated at every level seems to me to be a continuing area of focus for regulators and for class action attorneys and for for, for all types of disputes so that's another another clear one
3: and then you know finally there was already reference to ESG and greenwashing and, and seeing you know, some expectation of increased regulatory action there. Um, I know we have done a previous podcast about uh, litigation arising out of that, but we do expect to see more civil litigation uh, coming down the pipes in that area. Certainly, there's a lot of shareholder activism in the ESG space in Canada that our firm has been involved in, and I expect there's going to be more of that. This is an area that the insurers are paying very close attention to because it all has obvious implications for their... Their risks. So we are paying close attention to that. We expect that we're going to see a lot more of that. It's something that we're all getting ready to deal with. uh, And uh, obviously an area of concern for a lot of publicly traded companies out there as well.
1: So uh, Jeff, Linda, thank you so much. I think we, we might invite you back to pick up on some of these trends and follow up on where things are in the future. But thanks
2: for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I'd be happy to come back. Thanks so
3: much, Jeff. We really appreciate it.
4: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and